Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm Jane Hong. And I'm Tim Tseng. And we're your hosts. This season, we're focusing on the history of Asian American Christianity and the ways it can help us understand our present moment. Thanks for joining us. Hi, welcome to Centering, the podcast of Fuller's Asian American Center. I'm Jane Hong, a historian of 20th century U.S. immigration and foreign relations. And I'm Tim Sang, Pacific Area Director of InterVarsity's Graduate and Faculty Ministries. I'm also a historian of American religion with a focus on Asian American Christianity. So we're, we're really excited to be your co-hosts for this season of Centering, um, focusing on Asian American Christian history. Both of us are professional historians. That means we have um, PhDs. We spent a lot of our lives um, getting those PhDs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> way too long, way too many years of our lives. Yeah. Um, but as our experiences reflect, there are many different ways to be uh, professional historians. So we're going to talk about that today. In today's episode, we wanted to share a little bit about who we are and our heart for this topic and why we both from our different faith backgrounds and different professional locations, believe that it's important for Asian American Christians to know something about our history, um, particularly in this country, um, the United States. So if you're not watching Bling Empire, well, in fact, don't watch Bling Empire, our podcast series <laughs> will be a lot healthier for you. Yes, I don't know what Bling Empire is, but I'm going to take your word for it, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, why don't we start off? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey as a scholar and also as a Christian? How did you decide to study history? Sure. I was born in Taiwan back in 1963, and uh, my parents uh, brought me to the U.S. when I was just two years old. We wound up in Brooklyn, New York, where my father planted three Chinese churches, and I grew up in... Now, the Chinese and Asian American population in Brooklyn was rather small in the 1970s, but it was growing. So my church was growing, but it was also the, really the safest and most comfortable place for me to be when I was a teenager. Sure, I had a lot of non-Christian and non-Asian friends, but we never felt as close or as intimate as being part of that Chinese church community. The cultural tensions that I eventually experienced started to occur when I went to college. At NYU, I went to the Chinese Christian Fellowship, which was an InterVarsity chapter. Now, before joining the Christian Fellowship, I had visited some non-religious Chinese student associations, but found that the socializing there to be a bit distasteful, and maybe I'll share about that someday. So the Chinese Christian bubble was a much more comforting place to be. Now, this uh, somewhat times dramatic experience of moving in and out of the comfortable ethno-religious bubble that I grew up in caused me to raise lots of questions about my identity. I, I minored in East Asian studies to understand who I was and my cultural heritage. But in the process, I discovered um, that the unsavory history of Christian complicity in racial discrimination in Western colonialism. So I started to wonder, how could I, as a Chinese American, identify, and should I identify as a Christian given this history? No, I, I think I resonate a lot with some of what you're sharing, Tim. I feel like it's a rite of passage for Asian Americans. Uh, for those who grow up in the immigrant church, once you leave home, there's this turning point where you have to figure out, number one, if you want to remain Christian, like if your faith is something that is really central to who you are, or if it's the faith of your parents, right? That, that's one question. And then another question you have to kind of confront is how your faith relates to your ethnic or racial identity. And I feel like a lot of folks, you know, Asian Americans, 
you know, particularly when you go off to college, you know, you kind of discover race. This doesn't happen for everyone, but I feel like this is something that happens for many people. And I'll talk more about this as well, but I feel like if you choose to remain Christian, you often have to learn how to separate or kind of how to reconcile Mm -hmm. um, your ethnic or racial identity with um, the Christianity that you practice. And I reconciled this by leaving the Korean immigrant church altogether and never returning. Um, But how about you? Well, I think for me, this dissonance was complicated in many ways by the positive experiences I've had with the Chinese Christian Fellowship and with InterVarsity's uh, Missions Conference. I went to Urbana 1981. There, I heard multilingual prayers for the first time in my life. And I met Christians who were passionate about social justice and not just personal evangelism. So for me, that was part of the way, maybe to reconcile, but it it made the dissonance a little bit more difficult to walk through. Now, at Urbana, I made a decision to pursue God's calling in my life. And this led to seminary. So I wound up at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And there, I gained an even broader understanding of the Protestant tradition. And I think that helped me reconcile a bit between the dissonance I was feeling about Christian faith and my identity when I was in college. Because at Union, I learned about the social gospel. I learned about Black and liberation theologies. But since the conversations there were still centered on the Black and white or Western versus third world binaries, my questions about my identity as an Asian American didn't fit into any of these binaries. It went unanswered, but I felt like there God was beginning to bring things together. So it was when some of my history professors, particularly Robert Handy, challenged me to pursue a PhD in history of Christianity. And it was at that point where I started to see how the two come together. So when Union accepted me, and this was probably miraculous, accepted me into their doctoral program, that started my academic path into historical research. So that's a little bit about me. How about you, Jane? Please tell us about your journey. Um, Well, so I like that we're both from uh, the Northeast, in particular the New York City area. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think now we both live in California, and I'm married to a Korean American who grew up in the Los Angeles area. And so he and I you know, in many ways we have parallel kind of existences, but then I think our experiences are different. Um, and, you know, I, I moved to LA as an adult. And so I just had, the, you know, there's a lot of interesting differences between the coasts. And I'm sure you see this too, Tim, as someone who now lives and has lived in the Bay Area uh, for many years. My parents are from South Korea. They immigrated to New York City uh, in the 1970s. My mom was a nurse, and she got a visa under the 65 Immigration Act. I was born in Brooklyn. My <laughs> siblings... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also another interesting parallel between our lives. So I'm still connected to Brooklyn in many ways. So I'm one of three kids. Two of us were born in Brooklyn. One was born in New Jersey. But my parents opened a store, a small grocery store in Brooklyn Heights. Um, the store is still there. It's called Plymouth Deli. Um, it's been in my family since, I guess, 1979, 1980. Um, my father passed away when I was young. So he died um, around the time I was in kindergarten, first grade. He died of liver cancer. And so that left my mom, you know, the single parent with three kids, which is not a very, it's not a very common experience uh, for many Korean immigrants. Or maybe it is, but I feel like those narratives get hidden. So she went back to nursing. We moved around for the next few years. So we moved in, back into New York City. We lived in Flushing, Queens uh, for a year. My mom followed a job to the eastern shore of Maryland, which is not a place, again, where a lot of Asian Americans lived uh, during this time. And finally, we returned back to northern New Jersey, which is where I grew up for the most part and graduated from high school. Mm. Uh, One thing about my father's death um, is that my mom became a Christian around the time 
Um, and the church where she accepted Christ later became my home church in northern New Jersey. It's a Korean immigrant church. I can say lots of things about it. I learned a lot of good things there, um, but I also had a lot of challenges there. The church was unusual because it had a it had a female pastor, which made it really unusual among Korean churches. I'm sure we'll talk more about that because Asian immigrant churches, right? There's something about them <laughs> and growing up in them mm-hmm. that leaves a very strong imprint, I feel like, uh, on people. Yes, absolutely. And wow, what a great mom you you have. Uh, my mom was a nurse as well, as I think I mentioned, but well, yeah. maybe I didn't mention that. But <laughs> it sounds like you've had quite a challenging childhood with all the moving around and uh, the loss of your dad. So what happened um, after your high school? High school in New Jersey, I had a AP U.S. history teacher that I really admired, Dr. Michaels. Um, he really grew my love of history. So by the time I got to college, I had already decided that I wanted to be a history professor, which is a kind of a strange thing. I don't think I even understood what that meant. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I understood at all, actually. Um, so I went to Yale for college. I got there and I started taking classes in religious studies. I started taking like history of Christianity, New Testament, Old Testament, because I thought that I wanted to be a history professor of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is also before I realized you needed to learn like four languages <laughs> in order to do that history and how difficult and rigorous it is. <laughs> um, but I spent about a year or two taking these courses, watching some folks that I knew who were Christians kind of fall away from their faith. So it was a very interesting kind of time and transition mm-hmm. into college. I took a class called Asian American History, I think my second or third year in college. And for the first time, I saw my family's history reflected in what I was learning when I was learning about the 1965 Immigration Act. That experience, I think, was really transformative. And so I decided to study not Reformation history, but to study race in America. I was really involved with the Campus Crusade chapter. Now we call it crew, I suppose. But that chapter was called Yale Students for Christ. And in college, I went to a vineyard church because I didn't want to go back to Korean immigrant churches because I had many issues I was still working through. And I think my time at Vineyard, that kind of began what has remained in many ways, a longtime commitment to kind of multi-ethnic or multiracial churches, though I've also read a lot about the kind of shortcomings of those, right, mm-hmm. which we could talk about, I'm sure, and will. After college, I did Teach for America in Newark, New Jersey. I basically wanted to take a break before grad school. I knew I wanted to do a history PhD now in U.S. history. So I did Teach for America in Newark, New Jersey, which is even now, right? It's it's so close to where I grew up, but it's such a different world in many ways. I mean, I went to a pretty mediocre high school. It was not a very affluent town that I grew up in. So I was really sensitized to issues of kind of economic inequality. But Newark, New Jersey was a different experience altogether. I taught sixth and seventh grade social studies. Did that for two years, taught for another year, and then went to grad school. So I did one year at Brown University, a PhD program in history. Long story there about how I ended up there, but then I ended up um, going to Harvard after a year. So I went to Harvard for the PhD program, lived in Boston, didn't like it very much. (laughs) So I left to do research in different parts of the country, lived in California for several years during grad school, really fell in love with Los Angeles and the church that I attended here. By the time I got to the job market, for me, the big determining factor was location. I wanted to live in very particular places, which is not a great way to do the job market. Academic job markets are terrible. They're even more terrible now than they were when I was in the market, 2013, 2014. Um, But honestly, by acts of God, by miracles that God orchestrated, I got a job in New Jersey in 2013, taught for a year, and then decided I didn't want to be in New Jersey. So I then got a job 
here in Los Angeles. I'm very happy to be in LA now uh, with all of its pros and cons. Very happy to be in California. Yeah. I just want to say that I'm so, I feel so blessed to be here in California as well, because yes, the, the journey of either a pastor or an academic is very peripatetic. So you wind up yes. going all over the place. Um, Itinerant. Exactly. <laughs> and it almost feels like there's, there's no home. I was also fortunate in my own academic journey that I wound up in cities that I actually liked living in. Like, I That's an off, amazing thing. Yeah, I started off at Denver Seminary, then went to Colgate, Rochester. Rochester, New York has a lot to commend for it. It's a great little city. And then the Bay Area. So in that sense, I think God has been really good to both of us. <laughs> we, we've been feeling like life is really difficult in many ways. You, you, you don't often get what you want when it comes to academic life. But I think God has really given to us good situations. We don't want to turn this into a testimony service, so <laughs> I'll let you go. <laughs> I'm with you, Tim. <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of your scholarly work, which I use so much of, by the way, I often talk about Tim's work because I use so many of his early articles um, because, honestly, he writes about topics that not a lot of folks have written about, but they're really important. And so I guess a question I can ask about your research is, what are some of the big questions and themes you've tried to tackle? And do you see... You know, any connections between them and your own life? I'll start with the big question. <laughs> and then maybe if there's time to talk about themes, I can talk about my work there as well. But thank you for reading my, you know, one of the problems with scholars from my generation is that our work is not as accessible. And there's a reason for that historically in terms of the development of Asian American studies, for example. But let's get to the, the big existential question, which I think was implied in my upbringing. It's about my identity and my place as a Chinese-American Christian in America. That's really the starting point of everything that I've done, because I often wondered, I asked, often ask God about this, like, um, all the Christians I know are white, they're um, the, the ones that, that seem to have the most say, and is it really a legitimate thing for Chinese Christians to be Christians, or for Chinese people to be Christians, because of the history of imperialism, colonialism, and so on and so forth. So that's the starting point. And, then, and then as an Asian American, where do I fit into this whole piece? As an Asian American Christian, I, I think I mentioned earlier how I went to the Chinese student associations and didn't like the socializing there, because they were playing games that all related, that related to things that, that led to activities I did not really want to get into. <laughs> so, so, so I just felt like, where do I fit in, even in a secular Chinese American world? I don't drink and socialize like the rest of the other folks because of my Christian upbringing. So trying to find out where I fit and who I was in light of that was the big question. I think that over time I realized that I need to understand the story of Chinese Christians in America a lot more than I do now. And an understanding of that story, I thought, and I think has been confirmed, helps me understand myself and my place in the U.S. better and in the church as well. But the big question is how? How do I learn? The second big question, the secondary big question, how do I learn about that story? When I was starting off in my grad studies, there was virtually nothing written about Chinese Americans and Chinese American Christians, or at least nothing that I could find. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, probably not in, growing, in New York City, there's probably not as much attention given to Chinese Americans anyway. So in the 26 years since I wrote my dissertation, so much history of non-Western and non-white Christianity has been written. So that's really great. It's astounding, it's exciting, but it is still quite inaccessible. Some seminaries are beginning to teach more global and more multiracial history of, 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 of Christianity. Fuller, for example. <laughs> but, but very, very few Christians are getting access to this larger history. 
And similarly, uh, Asian American histories have also proliferated, but religion and the study of religion in, in, these, in these works haven't been featured very prominently in this scholarship. Yes. So that question still remains a big one. How do we learn that story and how do we tell it? It's a more practical question. So those are the two questions that have shaped what I've done. And even though I'm not professionally in academic position, I still want to help people learn that story. And I still want to help Asian Americans, Christians understand themselves better. And I think history is in a unique situation and place to offer answers to that. kind of talk about or just kind of name a few of the themes that your research addresses? What would be some of those? Sure. My research is really focused on Chinese American Christianity, as you might have guessed by now. My dissertation really wasn't centered on the Chinese American experience. I actually looked at Protestant missionaries and what kind of discourse they engaged in when Chinese and later on Japanese immigrants came to this country. How were they talking about Chinese and Japanese in a context where racial languages was very strong? How did missiological language impact that? So that really wasn't a Chinese-American study. But in terms of looking at Chinese-American Christian history, I think there's a few points I'll just make. One is that, surprisingly, the documentation is very plentiful. Chinese have had the longest recorded history in the United States compared to other Asians. Therefore, there are more sources to draw from. But getting access to the Christian materials is extremely difficult. Churches and families don't necessarily save their records. So to find out who these folks are and to, to learn, and if you don't know how to read Chinese, like I don't really know how to read Chinese, then it's even more difficult. But the documents are there. It's actually something which I, I think there can be a lot more research done, uh, and I'm sure there's more that's being done. A second theme or, or focus is the question, what were the pre-Code War Chinese Christian communities like, and do they matter today? Today, conservative evangelicalism is the dominant expression of Chinese Christianity. But back then, it was very different. What today would be called mainline Protestantism was a dominant religious or Protestant expression. So uh, Chinese Christians before the Cold War interacted a lot more with white Christians and non-Chinese Christians. They were influenced by theological liberalism and the social gospel. They were very open to engaging and speaking out against social injustice. And they all assumed that Christian faith required a public witness. And that was very different than what we're seeing today, although things are changing now. <laughs> a third theme is what happened to Chinese Christianity in the second half of the 20th century. Something changed. It used to be this mainline Protestant type of Christianity, but now it's become very evangelical. To some degree, apolitical, but that if they are political, they tend to be more conservative politically. So what I labeled trans-Pacific transposition, part of my research is trying to figure out what changed. And finally, I'm curious about the intergenerational dynamics in the Chinese diaspora. Chinese diaspora Christians are different from Chinese Christians in China. There's a whole different set of histories and U.S. Chinese Christians, and I would consider us a diaspora, but we've gone through so much dynamic changes, partly because of intergenerational tensions and intergenerational activities. So I like to study that and try to figure out what changed. And part of what I think is happening is that Chinese Christians are dynamically redefining what it means to be Chinese culturally. 
And, um, and that's something I hope to explore further in the, in the future. I'm sure that you and I share some big questions in common, but since your journey didn't really focus on the study of religion, at least initially, I wonder if you could tell us some of your big questions that might be a little bit different than mine, or even those that you think are worthwhile to repeat <laughs> and share in your own way. No, I mean, this is always one of those important questions. It's kind of, you know, as historians, how are you trained? So I was actually trained as a diplomatic historian. Like I said, I did my PhD at Harvard. Harvard specializes in something it calls global or international history which really emphasizes using non-American archives, preferably in different languages, to think about how, if you study the United States, to think about how the United States is actually part of a much bigger world, how Americans were always in conversation with other people. I'm part of the subfield called U.S. and the World, which essentially is today's version of diplomatic history. Um, and I specialize in U.S.-Asia relations, but as part of that, you know, I was always interested in immigration, some of the bigger kind of questions that I think about in my work, well, I mean, on a personal level, you know, I think one of the reasons why I was so interested in Asian American history is this, this idea of the model minority that really defines a lot of Asian American history. It's like the albatross that people are trying to run away from, but that like continues to follow us wherever we go. And it also in many ways characterizes how many non-Asian Americans still see Asian Americans today, Right. And I'll talk more about the political, I could talk mm -hmm. more about the political implications of it. The model minority isn't actually about, you know, isn't actually about Asian Americans, even though ostensibly it is. But for me, the model minority just really bothered me because I saw how it doesn't really capture people's lives. And personally, because I saw my own family's experience where, I mean, on the one hand, I did go to Yale, I did go to Harvard, but like, I would not say that my family's life really kind of can be described by the model minority single parent, three kids, not a lot of money. I mean, you could spin them into a model minority tale, but it really, just based on my own experience, I was like, this is not it. <laughs> there is so much more um, to Asian Americans' lives, complexities, the agency that Asian Americans actually should have and should be given, but should just have by nature of being human. So that was something I think that really in many ways motivated my early interest in Asian American history and also in justice generally, uh, justice, the history of racial justice and injustice. I mean, the biggest, the biggest questions I'm, I was trying to get at, who gets to be an American? <laughs> who gets to be an American and how, how does race shape the question of who gets to be an American? And then how do U.S. laws and policies, particularly immigration and naturalization policies, how did those laws and policies shape Americans' understandings of race and who gets to be an American, right? So these are all interconnected ideas. So my first book, it looks at the history of how U.S. Congress repealed the Asian exclusion laws during World War II and the Cold War, so 1940s, 1960s. So there's so much written about Chinese exclusion, you know, the ton, and for good reason, right? I'm watching Warrior right now, the TV show <laughs> on Cinemax, which some people might be interested. I mean, it's, it's actually really amazing, even as a historian, to be reminded of the actual violence that so many Chinese folks faced in America during the late 19th century, and honestly, even in many ways in our COVID times, right? So Asian Americans generally. So much is written about that early period, and again, for very good reason. And historians have made very good cases for why Chinese exclusion actually shaped the entire immigration system, which, you know, I teach this every time I teach immigration history. But my book looks at how those laws were repealed. And I think until, like, for a long time, people just kind of thought, oh, yeah, Congress repeals the Asian exclusion laws because people become less racist, civil rights. 
but that's actually not the case. Uh, and so if you actually dig deeper into that story, so my book traces, I look at a trans-specific movement. So I look at um, white Americans, Asian Americans in the United States, and I look at Asians in Asia who are lobbying U.S. Congress, because Congress basically controls immigration and naturalization policy historically. They control it. Um, and so I look at how these different people in Asia and the United States lobby Congress and why. And so the argument I make is that basically U.S. lawmakers repeal Asian exclusion because of U.S. empire, because the period during which repeal happens, 1943 to 1965, this is a period of Asian decolonization. This is a period of unprecedented U.S. empire building, military intervention, and everything else in Asia. The United States is so active in Southern Korea. It occupies Japan. It relinquishes its colony in the Philippines, but you have US troops all over the place, South Asia, Southeast Asia, there are US weapons in places, right? So essentially I argue that it's about US empire. And in fact, this is not a triumphalist story. When you look at how repeal happens, it happens slowly. It's very symbolic in the beginning, right? Congress gives like a hundred, an annual immigration quote of 100 per year to places like um, India, for example. They didn't actually, US Congress didn't actually want Asians to immigrate in. That wasn't the goal of repeal. It was actually about US interests in Asia. But the fact that you get to a point where there are so many Asians coming in, people like my parents, for example, many people's parents who are listening to this, that's actually, right, there was an unintended consequence. It was, a, it was like, oops, it was unanticipated, right? And so by the time you get to 65, you know, the immigration system opens up. There are no more quotas based on your nationality. And it just so happens that Asians are the ones who take advantage of the new immigration system. But most lawmakers didn't anticipate, predict, or even want this. It's kind of an ambivalent story that, again, has a lot to do with kind of what the United States is doing in Asia uh, during this period. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think your work is so important because it locates the efforts to repeal immigration, discriminatory immigration within this entire global context. And, and my own research uh, also reveals that very often the Christians who were involved with lobbying against discriminatory legislators actually used an earlier form of a model minority argument <laughs> to show that Asian Americans belonged in this country. So I think there's a lot of connections there. Some of the early Christian missionaries were the ones who actually created the earlier version to justify not discriminating against Asian Americans by calling them model minorities. In any case, what are you doing now? Uh, what are you doing uh, currently? Currently, what am I doing? I'm moving into your territory, Tim, as you know, because I, I email Tim all the time and I say, Tim, do you have any recommendations about this topic? And I just throw out random topics and just see if Tim knows anything because that's the nice thing about scholars. Like you spend so much time in these literatures that people could just ask you for like recommendations. You can just throw stuff off the top of your head. So I'm currently writing a history of Asian American evangelicals since the 1970s. It looks at how post-1965 Asian immigration has changed U.S. evangelical institutions and politics and how it intersects with the rise of the religious right. You know, very briefly, I could talk more about this. I probably will at some point. I mean, this book really originated in an intervarsity grad and faculty ministries project called Venn Diagram, which began with a women faculty of color group. It's amazing we can even have one of those. <laughs> Venn Diagram is about Asian American identity, Christianity, and politics. So it's about how do Asian American Christians engage with society and with 
politics and with, you know, our broader context. And I did a few, or I did a presentation about the rise of the religious right, talking about the fusion of religion and politics in the late 1970s, something I teach every year in my U.S. history survey. And I realized that so few people even understood or knew this history at all. It's like a hidden to the vast majority of people. And that really made me think. And I, I began to think about kind of historical illiteracy that most people, and I understand why most people don't know much of this history. It's like, you know, unless you're taught this history and you remember it, right? In your 30s, 40s, 50s, like you're not really going to think about this every day necessarily. But the thing is, you know, as believers, I think that, right, in some ways, not knowing this kind of history, not understanding where you sit in this longer historical narrative about kind of why do people describe these particular political positions as the Christian position? Like, why do particular people talk about Christianity in this way? How does race figure into this conversation? You know, I just felt like in, in talking to folks, particularly Asian American Christians, a lot of people just felt really ill-equipped to even talk about these subjects. Like, where do we even fit in these conversations that are oftentimes very framed, you know, just black and white? You know, Asian Americans are usually erased from these conversations altogether. You know, it's the big theme of Asian American, I think, history is erasure, right? That we're just not in these histories. We're not even in like Gallup polls. Like people don't care about our histories. So if they don't care about these histories, they don't know them. Who's going to <laughs> care or know about them? So I decided, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this history. I'm not trained in religion, but I know how to do rigorous history and I know how to read and I'm open to learning. And so moving into the study of religion evangelicalism specifically, because it's such a politicized topic. It's been very challenging in lots of ways. Um, and I can say so much more about that, um, especially because I'm at a secular institution. I've never been at a Christian institution in my entire career. And most of my colleagues in my secular history field are suspicious of Christians. Um, identifying publicly as Christian, that's a challenging thing um, for someone in my position. And so you know, I really had to weigh, and I'm still working through a lot of these issues or questions right now. But yeah, I'm very excited to be writing this history, and I'm very fortunate and blessed to have friends like Tim <laughs> who can tell me more <laughs> and kind of lead me in the right direction. We're kind of coming to the to the end, but I wanted to ask you, Tim, just kind of why, you know, you've had this unique opportunity both to research Asian American Christian communities as a professor at a seminary. You now minister to Asian American Christians. I mean, you did as a church pastor. Now you're into varsity. From your very unique perspective, why do you think history matters? Like when, you know, why does it matter to Asian American believers? Like why does that even, why should people care? Well, I'd say that it's great to have you be part of the religion side of the discussion of, in history because that's one of the reasons why it matters. <laughs> it's because your your historians like you are going to really help us um, to make the the historical uh, knowledge more available to a wider, a broader public, and not just to Christians alone. For me, I think it also goes back to that big existential question about my identity and place. I think something is terribly wrong with the traditional Eurocentric narrative of the Christian story. Because people like myself, and as you mentioned it, and other people of color, but particularly Asian Americans are erased, are not even considered part of the story. So because of that, I think that this has created some real tensions for many Asian Americans I know, especially those who grew up in the church. For some, uh, the way to deal with this problem is to leave the faith. Christianity is 
nothing more than an extension of Western cultural imperialism. It's used to legitimize the worst practices and acts of European and Americans in history. Now, however plausible truth claims Christianity might have, it wasn't desirable because of a shallow understanding of history. So this is where historical insight and nuance would be helpful. History can show us that Christianity was not a mere tool in the hands of Western colonialism or Western oppression. Christians often countered these efforts, but we don't know the history well enough in order to see it, that there's actually a very thin but vocal prophetic line within the narrative. In my opinion, this vocal, thin, but prophetic line, this counter story is authentic Christianity. And historically, that's the part that I hope gets shared more. And for others who want to remain in a church, they turn to liberation theology and our Asian American activism as a solution to this problematic, uh, problematic in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in the Christian narrative. And they want to free Asian Americans from this Eurocentric captivity of Christianity, as Sun Chan titles his book, The European Captivity of Christianity. They want to escape from that, they, they, and they envision a global and multi-racial uh, faith. I see myself as part of this group, but I also realized while I was studying in seminary that black theology, minjung theology, and other forms of liberation theologies needed to be grounded in history. In other words, these theologies focused a lot on the social political dimensions around inequality, but they don't really take into account the lived experiences of oppressed peoples, and academically, they also don't really bring into their analysis uh, historical research. So theology might provide a lens, but the narratives still belong to the dominant culture. So the stories of Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Korean, and other Asian Americans needed to be heard, and especially those who are religious too. They, these needed to be heard and written in order to decenter the Euro-American narrative and to create a multi-ethnic story or stories. So in this unusual way, unveiling the history of Asian American Christianity, as well as those of other peoples of color, is kind of an apologetic for Christianity. How about you, Jane? Why does history matter, and why should it matter for Asian American Christians? Well, I guess um, this kind of ties to the question of what I'm hoping folks can take away from a, a podcast about Asian American Christian history. This is what I teach basically every year. This is how I teach all of my classes. I teach my classes through the lens of the present. The bottom line is I want people to be persuaded and to believe that history matters, that it's relevant to your life, it's useful to your life, not only when you read the news, but just in your everyday life, right? How you interact with other folks, how you live in this world, and that it's relevant to the lives of your children, your family members, right? And that history is not just kind of boring memorization, right? It's not just about reciting timelines, but I mean, history is a dynamic conversation. It's how people interpret the past and that shifts over time and depends on who's telling the history, whether you're white, not white, right? Male, female, there are so many different perspectives, right? That lead us to our different interpretations. These are not like objective, you know, never changing narratives or truths. History is, you know, a dynamic conversation. And as believers, part of stewardship is having a basic historical literacy. By historical literacy, I just mean being able to position and situate yourself in society as part of this longer national history. I think this is part of just being a responsible and faithful Christian witness. Because if you don't know where you fit and where you come from and where these ideas come from, you're not really well equipped to talk about the real issues and problems that people care about, things that are harming the body of Christ, things that 
shape your life and shape the lives of your congregations. Now, this is whether you're a church pastor or a layperson. I mean, honestly, it goes for everyone, I would argue. For pastors, I think the responsibility is even greater in many ways. Mm -hmm. To be able to talk about things like anti-Asian racism during COVID as part of a much longer history, not something that's just all of a sudden happening in 2020, Mm -hmm. but also just to think about broader systemic issues as part of a longer history. Who has access to housing? Who has access to the vote? That this isn't just something that, you know, popped up in 2020, but is part of a longer history that came from somewhere. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, people often talk about learning lessons from history, you know, don't repeat the mistakes of the past. But in fact, you know, I think it's more more accurate to say, you know, you can't actually tackle the issues of the present if you don't understand where they came from. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just about learning lessons. It's actually about like you can't actually do any like it's really difficult to be effective if you don't even understand what actually created or who created um, the particular systems that you're trying to uh, address in the present. Oh, yeah. How about, yeah. I mean, how about you, Tim? What, what are you hoping folks can take? Well, you know, after I share this, I hope you, I'd love to hear what you think as well. Briefly, I think that as we listen um, to the stories that our guests share in this podcast series, uh, there are three words I can, I hope that people take away from it. One is enrichment. I hope that Asian American Christian stories can provide sources for theological reflection, discipleship, and spiritual formation. Secondly, I hope that the podcast provides for folks a sense of connection to the past. Asian American Christians have been around. We're not, we're, we shouldn't have been erased to begin with, but we've been around. We've built communities. We've led movements to extend American democracy and the church. Uh, we matter in the church and in the United States, and I would dare say in the world. And thirdly, discernment. History can help us filter out what aspects or which aspects of our faith is authentically a representative of Jesus and his kingdom and which aspects are held, held captive by inauthentic expressions such as Christian nationalism. How about you, Jane? I mean, I guess the final thing I'd say is, I think, especially for folks out there, I mean, we all have families and, and networks we're connected to. Um, I think after becoming a mom um, in the past year, I mean, a lot of these questions have become much more pressing. But I think this is true for anyone who just has family and loved ones that are being affected by what the COVID crisis. And right now, I mean, we're recording this in January in the aftermath of what happened on January 6th um, at the Capitol. And I'm now furiously revising all of my syllabi before classes begin because, Mm. again, this isn't just important for Asian American Christians in particular, but it is, I think, also important for Asian American Christians to come to these questions and to understand kind of where we fit in this larger story. And these are big, and that's the thing, I understand. These are hard, complex questions. I'm not saying people need to read like 50 books, okay, because I know most people will not do that. (laughs) But like whatever it looks like, right, podcasts, like the through line podcast on NPR, I mean, whatever it looks like, documentaries, right? Just to kind of, to really encourage fellow believers to educate yourself, to get educated and to really think about where you fit, right? In this world. I think this is so important. And so that's a lot of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast with you. And, and, and a lot of the reason why I'm, I'm happy to be doing this podcast with you. 
Thank you, Jane. Me too. I, I am so delighted to be able to share this time with you and, and have you bring your expertise into this conversation. I would have to say that I think most of our attention will be given to our guests. So I would love to find more opportunities to interject what you can bring from your scholarship as well. And I hope to share a little bit too. So thank you so much. I, I'm looking forward to this, Jane. This is going to be an exciting season. Awesome. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. You can listen to Centering episodes at soundcloud.com backslash centering podcast or your favorite podcast app. Go in peace and remember that God loves and embraces all of who you are.